You are listening to the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. I'm Graham Brown, your host and founder of Pitch Media Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to investigate the growing role of technology in building an efficient, resilient, and sustainable agri-food supply chain that can deliver fresh, nutritious food to today's fast-changing consumer market. To register for Singapore's annual Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week, being held from the 20th to the 22nd of November, visit us at www.agrifoodinnovation.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. Responding to the major shift in Asian diets as busy urban consumers adopt convenience foods and ready-prepared meals, a new wave of healthy ingredients and products are poised to combat the rise of diabetes and obesity in the region. From healthier alternatives to sugar and sugar replacements, fortification of staple foods, to speciality foods that tackle specific health challenges such as senior wellness and cognitive health, the challenge is to create foods that promote health while retaining convenience, flavor, texture and affordability for the Asian consumer. Changing diets across Asia are leading to increased diabetes, obesity and unhealthy aging. How can the food industry tackle Asia's impending health crisis with new approaches to sugar replacements and functional foods? Hello, this is Graham Brown. I'm talking to Anand Sundaresan from DSM Nutrition. Anand, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Graham. Great to be speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. We're going to learn about nutrition, health, and importantly, this idea of food as medicine. Before we go there, maybe you can tell us something about your background. Which part of the industry of food and nutrition do you come from in terms of experience? Are you from the science side? Are you from the marketing side? Help us understand where you fit into the bigger picture. Sure. Happy to do that. So I work for DSM, uh, which is a science-based, purpose-led company, which focuses on three main uh, sectors, nutrition, uh, health, and sustainable living. And uh, I help uh, the nutrition, human nutrition and health business here in Asia Pacific. And more broadly, what uh, nutrition means uh, from a DSM perspective, and we can get into it in more detail, is about how do we utilize our scientific know-how and our expertise uh, in overall nutrition, but also also in specific areas of vitamins, carotenoids, and other ingredients to make food much more sustainable as well as more nutritious. And that's our heritage as we came out of uh, Roche Pharmaceuticals about mm. 20 years ago. Great. Is it a science problem fundamentally, better nutrition? How do you understand the problem? That's a great question. I think if you look at, you know, and I'll use Asian context uh, you know, Asia is the home to a lot of the you know historical holistic medicine whether you think about tri- mm. Chinese traditional medicine or uh, the Indian subcontinent you have Ayurveda so there has always been a, a knowledge or an awareness that food and nutrition go hand in hand mm. but more recently there are these macro trends economic trends whether you, whether it's uh, poverty whether it is uh, income inequality whether it's urbanization that leads to both challenges as well as opportunities and how we can continue to address 
address the nutritional needs of uh, the society at large. And in many ways, it's also common in many pockets of the you know in the developed countries. I've, I've lived in the uh, U.S. most of my life, and you can see the same lack of access to nutritious foods in the inner cities in Chicago or in Pittsburgh. So it's 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 specific to Asia in some ways because of the economic issues, but it's also global in terms of as we urbanize, uh, how do we get access to nutritious food? When you talk about Asia and you look at the the meta trends where Asia is heading in terms of nutrition, and generally, you know, it's a very broad brush when we're talking about Asia. We have many different markets, sizes, speeds, cultures, and so on. How do you understand it in the context of global nutrition? Are they sort of catching up in a, in a negative way with all those Western diseases, or do they have something which puts them at an advantage? And I think of all those sort of degenerative diseases which have been subject of conversation for the last 20 or 30 years in the context of nutrition in the US or Europe, for example, when we talk about obesity, diabetes, cancer, like caused partly by nutrition. Where are we in Asia? Is Asia starting from a more advantageous position or will they slowly catch up with all the bad habits of the West? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's, it's, it's going to be difficult to you know, answer that in a broad swath. So if you peel the, you know, the onion one layer at a time, if you look at it broadly, uh, the great uh, opportunity in Asia is, uh, the great thing about Asia is millions of people are coming out of poverty, which basically means malnutrition or undernutrition every year, which is the great news. But the fact still is Asia is home to more than half of the world's undernourished people, mm. right? And whether it's a lack of micronutrients, which we call malnourishment, or also the other part, which is I think you refer to as the, the, the disadvantages of following a Western diet in some cases, especially as it pertains to processed food, which leads mm. to obesity, right? So childhood obesity rates are actually growing at a much faster level in Asia than even in the developed economies, which wow. may be surprising given that uh, malnourishment is still a big problem in Asia. So there are, it's it's very difficult to kind of uh, you know have a broad swath across Asia because as you know it's about it's a very complex region. Mm. But on a macro level, uh, there is still the the uh, existence of the historical need for better nutrition, removing hidden hunger. At the same time, uh, at, at attacking some of the uh, uh, let's call it the um, uh, the health problems of a developed economy hmm. yeah i wonder when you say childhood obesity in asia is growing faster than the rest of the world what that exactly means and does it mean that it has to you know you've got a generation to catch up whereas maybe in the u.s they've had that for 40 odd years therefore they they've had the ability to educate themselves and maybe they can turn the tide slowly yet in asia the parents are still coming with a mindset, like you say, of we need to put food on the table. We've got to have, you know, our, our challenge is a micronutrient problem that we don't have enough calories in our kids. Even though that's not the case now, they're still ingrained with that mindset. How is it in terms of talking to consumers? Are they getting on board with this or are they still coming from that position of, you know, fear of starvation, I guess, in some markets? That's a very perceptive question. So if you were to segment, you know, I would look at it as, a, let's say, a tale of two Asias. So mm. you have the developed economies in Asia, 
right, where there is a lot of what I call the democratization of information. So uh, think of Singapore, think of Korea, think of Japan, uh, which would be the developed economies where the trend is more towards personalized nutrition, where people have access to information, just like uh, someone uh, in Chicago or in uh, Budapest or, you know, some of the developed areas. They know that functional foods or better foods can have lead to better outcomes, and they try to incorporate that in their daily routine. On the other hand, you have the developing economies that we talked about within South Asia, and even within South Asia, there is a you know there is a certain uh, rich population or a population that has access to information. But then you have these um, you know micronutrient issues. But broad strokes, uh, the challenge also is as you're moving from a rural agrarian economy to an mm. urbanized economy, you are consumers in general are resorting more to processed foods ready ready to you know eat ready to heat packaged foods which are which are very rich in carbohydrates but pure in nutrition and that's an area or an opportunity for all of us across the industry to really see how we could cater to these problems these macro trends that are happening in asia but still ensure that the consumers and society at large remains healthy and productive hmm. You talk about food as medicine, food food as, I mean, we'll bring in nutraceuticals as well into this conversation and what you do at DSM. Food as medicine, is that a first world problem, a first world issue, or is this applicable to everybody? Help us understand first what food as medicine means and then what it means to different people in Asia. Sure. So in Asia specifically, so uh, if you look at and I'll come back to the question of what food is medicine means in Asia, uh, the historical context has always been a recognition of uh, the, you know, the nutritional or the health aspects of food. You know, you look at, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, mm. whether it's herbs, whether it's nutraceuticals or uh, in uh, the South Asian Indian uh, context of using Ayurveda, which is a few thousand years old. So there's always been an acknowledgement of using you know, both moderation as well as balanced diets and using what we consider in the model world, nutraceuticals, natural plant-based, uh, you know, forms of the protein or forms of uh, uh, vitamins and minerals. That's always been there. Uh, the, the, the area that I think we need to go beyond is how do we then incorporate this in, in this current Asia where you have uh, you know, as I mentioned, a population which is definitely growing, but is becoming urbanized, so packaged foods. So how do we ensure that the typical modern lifestyles of people, whether it's in food or beverage choices, uh, are basically being supported in a way that we could utilize uh, natural ingredients as much as possible? So think of antioxidants, which can preserve mm. food instead of uh, artificial sweeteners cutting down on some of the normal things that you see, higher amounts of sugars and, and fats, uh, trans fats or salt, and still ensure that the food is nutritious and tasty. Hmm. For yourself, Anand, as a, a nutrition professional, executive in the world of nutrition science, how does that balance with some of the things that you, you said? So, for example you know, coming from areas of South India where Ayurveda is strong, which has long traditionally been seen through Western, more scientific eyes as something a little bit mystical, maybe a little bit new age, quote unquote. And yet what you talk about, that acknowledgement of balance 
and acceptance of food in terms of the whole healing and lifestyle process really is sort of gaining acceptance even in, in the medical world as well. How, how do those balance in sort of conversations that you have in the world of nutrition now? Are people coming around to it or are stup- still people resistant to, dare I say it, what people may perceive in the old days as quote unquote hippie medicine? <laughs> That's an excellent question. So I think what we at DSM do, and you know, as I mentioned, we are a science-based company, is we try to utilize and utilize our scientific expertise and know-how and apply, let's call it, Western methods of scientific inquiry to many of these, uh, whether we call them natural foods or natural ingredients or natural supplements, to really utilize, uh, uh, you know, let's call it our science-based approach to evaluating certain uh, micronutrients or also nutraceuticals to really come up with proper evidence-based dietary supplements. So mm-hmm. I'll give you one example is uh, Redicose, which uh, is a DSM product. I'm not uh, uh, you know, p- just pitching the product, but it's just an example of how you can address pre-diabetes and diabetes. And it's actually from a, a mulberry plant extract, which based uh, on our scientific finding, a lot of clinical trials, uh, we can uh, kind of marry both of them in terms of natural ingredients, which have uh, both beneficial therapeutic or at least uh, preventive aspects of, uh, uh, for health. Mm. Can the average person eat themselves healthier, fitter, you know, applying this idea of food as medicine? Is it a case of, do they have to take supplements or is, is it the supplements are in everyday food generally? So, so there are definitely, you could definitely benefit by being a lot more educated about the levels of different micronutrients and different food systems. But at the same time, you know, if you look at the preponderance of scientific evidence, and I'll take one example is DHA and EPA, right, Mm. which are the omega oils. Uh, it is a fact, and it's been proven, that to consume the level of EPA and DHA, which you'd perhaps find in fish, as an example, you would have to eat a lot of fish, or in many cases, as we're seeing with the degradation of our health, I mean, of our food systems, uh, the uh, the EPA and DHA sources are not going to be su- sustainable, right? So uh, one of the examples we have is basically a, a plant or an algal-based source of DHA and EPA, mm. which can help across, you know, whether you're talking about aging populations for cognition or for early life nutrition for, uh, for maternal moms and for uh, pre-teens or kids, because science has shown that high levels of, you know, adequate levels of EPA and DHA in a different, uh, you know, target population forms can have a very beneficial effect. So to answer your question, and I'm sorry for kind of going around to give you an example, yes, functional foods can definitely help, but the level of supplementation or augmentation that's needed uh, as shown by a scientific study definitely means that you could definitely supplement it and then do it in a way that it's uh, economically sustainable and environmentally uh, possible. Yeah. Do you think that's going to be a big part of our diet in the future? That's how people will eat? that maybe we don't have access to the foods in there, maybe their natural organic state in the kind of quantities that we need. Maybe if we were to go back hundreds of years, the fact that these foods grew in, in the earth and those the soil was of a higher quality perhaps, that it had those nutrients in them, or maybe they were in abundance. But now, people's sort of modern lifestyles, it's just not possible, is it? 
Sure. So I think it's it's going to be having a balance, right? And, and I think there is also there a lot of quite a lot of advances made in uh, uh, you know in agriculture to increase the level of um, let's call it the productivity of our food. To you know, and you look at it more from a broader context of uh, climate change, land use. How do you utilize that? So technology will definitely play a role. Uh, in in terms of keeping up with the uh, the change, but there's absolutely no doubt that we'll have to do better from a holistic perspective of our whole food systems, right, mm. to ensure that there is sustainability overall. And uh, and definitely uh, micronutrient or nutrient uh, deficiencies are uh, making sure that these are opportunities that will be there for the population for the future is something that all of us need to collectively address. Mm. How do you? I mean, I'm very curious about this, Anand. Is that how does anybody in this space sort of look forward to the future and, with a degree of confidence, say that what we know now is not going to be completely flipped on its head in 20 years' time? And I say that thinking back to context of, let's say, for example, one area which is very much a growth area in nutrition is probiotics or prebiotics as well. And the whole idea that bacteria are good for you, yet if you were to go back 50 years or more to maybe our parents' generation, bacteria are always seen as an evil that needed to be destroyed. And yet in, in this podcast as well, we've talked to a number of people who have talked about ideas like the human biome. And then we've had conversations, for example, about fat, you know, how fat now is a good thing, yet a generation ago, fat was seen as the evil, the cause of heart disease, etc., etc. And it seems, I suppose, from an external perspective, that it seems like a binary switch in the nutrition space, like between black and white, and now it's going to be black in the next trend, and then it's going to be white again. Do you, from somebody on the inside, when you look at these trends, how do you read it in the sense that we're not just kind of going through these cyclical trends which go back on themselves? So that's a very difficult question to answer because I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of little things that we need to unpack, right? So more broadly speaking, I, I don't look at it as a as a binary switch. I look at it as a broad spectrum that we all need to operate because as we come to know more about, you know, to your example about bacteria and the human biome or probiotics, I think as we make advances and we get you know, better information, uh, which is scientifically proven, I think it in increases our general understanding. So we're talking about the uh, fads specifically, and those are some things that are always going to be there, right, in, in terms mm. of uh, consumer choices and consumer needs. But if you look at the, the broad nutrition trends that have stood the test of time, uh, you know, they seem to be pretty much the same. I mean, you have to have a balanced diet, number one. Uh, make sure that uh, your calorie intake is consistent with, uh, you know, your uh, your uh, biomass or your uh, body mass. I'm sorry, and then you have to have an adequate amount of uh, nutrition in terms of uh, vitamins, but also coming in the forms of fruits and vegetables. So those larger, let's call it uh, facts, which have remained over the and have stood the test of time will remain as such. And science or technology, as we come up with new advances, we can always try to augment that and make sure that uh, whether we get into aspects of healthy aging, because now we have a population that lives longer. Definitely, there are areas where we could use site science, technology, supplementation, micronutrition to ensure that the uh, society as large remains healthy and places less of a burden on society as a whole mm. i mean it's a dynamic market marketplace isn't it and in the sense from your perspective as well the kind of players now that you must be dealing with 
it must be a growing set of industries and different types of people as well. So in your work at DSM, are you increasingly talking to different types of companies, different sizes? And the, the follow-up question as well is like, who would you like to see more conversations with or more people in your space from? Sure. So I'll answer the second question first, Graham. So I think this conference is, is a perfect avenue because I'm a firm believer that you have to work across the entire value chain and across all the stakeholders. So whether you look at it as government organizations, a collaborative platform needs to exist between NGOs, scientific science-based companies like us, corporations, academic industry, mm. to really look and see what are the key challenges that the industry or the whole society will face not just now, but over the next 10, 15 years, and what is the right regulatory framework? What are the main innovation aspects that we need to put in place, right? And then from a from a business perspective, we are extremely open to innovating. So we are actually looking across the entire spectrum of uh, other companies or participants in the industry, whether it is um, startups, which are focusing specifically in uh, specific kinds of proteins, or other you know, players across the entire ecosystem. And our innovation application lab, which is based in Singapore, we have a, a pretty sophisticated uh, lab capability and also scientific capability. We are always talking to people across the broad spectrum, whether it is uh, NGOs uh, or a, even with small startups to start up in Singapore, but also in Asia to see how we can collaborate and try to make sure that can, we can come up with solutions that are innovative, but also address the basic challenges that we have. Yeah, let's put it out there as well. Is there any specific technologies or applications that you would really like to see more of? I mean, you talk about, for example, like with the startups and types of proteins. Is this one area that you would say, look, this is an area which is very much in demand. There isn't enough supply out there at the moment. We would love to talk to people about this. I'm just putting it out there. If you had a, let's call it a shopping list for technologies or innovations that excite you at the moment what would those be that's a great question i, th I think you if i look at it from an asian perspective mm. right i mean as in terms of what are the opportunities in asia obviously the functional food uh, aspect whether it is uh, how do we make sure that things are sustainable if you look at protein consumption as a whole if asia follows the historical developed uh, economy uh, of the past, uh, it'll, it'll really be unsustainable in terms of the amount of animal protein that we may need to consume. So it has to be balanced at the same time. So other, if there are startups uh, or even uh, research institutes that can help us feed this growing population in Asia and also address across the various spectrums that we talked about, whether it's early life nutrition on one hand or healthy aging, whether it's uh, gut health or it's cognition. I mean, things that can improve the overall outcomes, the health outcomes of the population in Asia would be welcome news for us to uh, collaborate and see how we could uh, uh, work together. Fantastic. That was Anand Sundarasan from DSM Nutrition. Anand, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you. It's a pleasure, Graham. Okay, so Graham Brown here with Matthew Godfrey, CEO of Nutrition Innovation based in Singapore. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Graham. Good to be here. So you're based in Singapore, originally from Australia. We're going to talk about nutrition, sugar, everything in between. Tell us a little bit about what you do at Nutrition Innovation. We're a global technology company. We were founded by a gentleman called Dr. David Kanar, who's a... Uh, a clinical pharmacologist 
And his passion is to be trying to create better and healthier carbohydrates that can be done at scale mm. to help the world combat obesity and diabetes. And so we've been on that mission since launch in 2017, and we're now rolling out our technology into global markets so that customers and consumers can get access to, to less and better carbohydrates wherever they are in the world. Fantastic. That's not an easy or straightforward task by any means, especially when the media has sort of turned tide on carbohydrates. I think when you say healthy carbohydrates, people immediately start thinking about carbohydrates as the evil or as the media has painted it in some way, sugar is the devil here. Tell us a little bit about what we need to know and what is the myth and reality in this debate. I mean, so, so yes and no. I mean, if you, if you can just look at the Singapore government, they actually have an unrefined carbohydrate policy. Um, and so some areas and some governments and some people are already having a conversation about what is what is the right type of carbohydrates to, to consume. Um, and carbohydrates really are just a source of energy. Um, and other parts of the world, such as Africa, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, not people are not getting enough carbohydrates. There's malnutrition in the marketplace. And so in those markets, it's about getting more of a better type of carbohydrate. So, yes, there's a lot of conversation about the, the wrong type of carbohydrate. But when you start talking to food scientists, mm. government officials, people who really understand the space, there's actually actually a, a large press for, for better quality carbohydrates in the marketplace. And of course, there are uh, the other side as well, which is too much of anything is a bad thing. So in many places, we also need to consume less and better. Yeah, these debates tend to go full one side of the, the argument, and then they sort of swing back, don't they? they tend to find some kind of balance. I mean, if you were to go to, let's say, Silicon Valley now, you have a whole group of people growing up privileged who are now trying to eliminate carbohydrates from their diet but like you say any any nutritionist will tell you that they're an essential part of any living being's diet where are we now what's the the sort of zeitgeist of the debate at the moment when people are talking about carbohydrates where do they sort of fit into our needs well, where we see it is is a certainly evolving conversation, not just as as markets change and consumers change, but as science emerges. So there is now a growing body of science looking at at, at carbohydrates, how the body metabolizes them. There are some complex but interesting areas, not just how you can slow the release of carbohydrates into the bloodstream, but also how the microbiome can play an important part of metabolizing carbohydrates effectively. So it's a really interesting and evolving science. And that's really, I think, generating the debate. And over the next, I think, five to 10 years, we'll follow, I think, what happened to, to, to fats mm. during the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s, where all fats were bad. And then we entered into a conversation about good fats and bad fats and there are some very natural products which are which are which are you know healthier for you overall where we're heading is less processed less refined is generally a better way to go particularly in carbohydrates but pretty much all foods really yeah do you think the the problem lies maybe with the the semantics and the definitions when you talk about fats for example fats are fats according to the definition but in that definition you could have let's say avocado all the way up to the trans fats that they may sort of pump into the less, you know, healthier foods. Is it the same with carbohydrates now? Are we sort of starting to see different types and people sort of defining them differently? 
Well, I, I think it's already started to define differently. I mean, complexity in, in, a, in a good way, complexity in a food substance has led people to have conversations about added sugars and natural sugars. So, there, are, you know, an apple has complexity in its sugars, and so people don't say don't eat apples. But then added sugar in an apple juice is, is bad. So I think generally speaking, the conversation is heading towards the, the natural underlying complexity of the carbohydrate, mm. which leads us to a conversation really around, you know, brown breads, brown rice, brown food are, are generally regarded as less less processed, less refined, naturally more complex and therefore better for your digestive process. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of talk now about slow carbs. Would that be what we're talking about here? Yeah, slow release energy, slow release carbohydrates, and basically that's that's a response to the growing diabetes epidemic, which is which is really taking Southeast Asia particularly, but all the world by by force. Um, and if you look at what happens with high release, fast um, release carbohydrates that go straight into your bloodstream. They cause your pancreas to put out insulin. Your your pancreas gets worn down over time, and that's what leads to the onset of diabetes. And so, the if you can manage your your um, insulin response, if you can manage the the amount of blood sugar that goes into your into your um, uh, into your into your system on a, on a slower base, then you can actually help manage your your uh, overall body in a better way. But it's more than that. It's also about um, if you have a slow-release carbohydrate, it's actually pushing down further into the system and can be a, a very good carrier then for the microbiome. So they, they can be a probiotic uh, fuel, if you like, or a prebiotic fuel for, for the microbiome. So slower carbohydrates can have an impact on blood sugar, but also can have a, a positive impact on the microbiome. Sugar. So let's talk about that. That's obviously the pariah in many aspects in media. But now we're talking about good sugars, bad sugars. Is that a debate that's out there now? I mean, where did we sort of fall with that? Will we ever have a discussion where people are saying you need more sugar? Um, more sugar, I, I think um, uh, I think many parts of the world are over-consuming sugar anyway. So it doesn't matter whether they have good or bad, uh, they should consume less. And there's plenty of statistics around the world which shows the overconsumption of carbohydrates and overconsumption of calories. So if you've got low exercise, you've not uh, um, got any portion control and you're over-consuming, doesn't really matter how, how good or bad the carbohydrate is or the sugar is, you know, you probably need to consume less. Um, but overall, yes, there there has to be a debate about about good sugars and bad sugars and which ones are the good ones to have. And and again, going back to the apple example, everybody would, would say mm. that the sugar in an apple is probably a good thing to eat because it's naturally complex. Can you achieve that in, in, a, in a sugar that you buy industrially? Can you achieve that in a, in a sugar... Um, that you buy in a retail sense, and that's where our technology comes in, and that's where our focus has been. So what does the technology do here, Matthew? Does it replace the sugar with, or synthesize it in a different way, or does it help with the, the release of the sugar in the bloodstream? How does it work? Um, a, a bit of all that. Uh, so we have two technologies, one which is, which is not synthesizing or changing the sugar, but it's keeping natural antioxidants and polyphenols, which have always been in sugar cane, but have always been taken out of the refining process. But if you leave them in and leave the sugar a little bit more naturally complex with micronutrients and, and polyphenols in, included, it will slow down the release of carbohydrates, the body's natural release of carbohydrates into the blood system by about 20%. So you can, just keeping the product more natural and keeping the right micronutrients in, in sugarcane will have a positive effect. And that's mm. the first technology. The second technology is uh, enables sugar reduction in a food system by up to 70%. So it can achieve the, the first, but also then can deliver upon sugar reduction as well. So, so delivering upon less and better. So 
Can we break those both down a little bit so we can understand them? More yep. natural, keeping the product more natural. What does that actually mean? What do you do there? So it's uh, we have measurement technology, um, and so the in the in the processing of 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 sugarcane, there's the the initial process is called milling. Uh, we have technology which allows a sugar miller to look for these micronutrients as the sugar is being made, and keep those micronutrients in the sugar crystal in the production in real time. Uh, and that's a, a quite a step forward for the production of sugar, because these micronutrients and these uh, antioxidants were generally regarded as as a as a waste stream and taken off to either fertilizer or animal feed, not kept within the sugar. And so it's measurement technology to allow a, a new and healthier specification of raw sugar. Mm. So does that, when you actually produce the refined sugar, does it still contain all those macro elements or is it just in the, uh, the, the raw ref, version refined yeah refined sugar is, is up to about 99.9 percent .9 sucrose so it's 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 pretty much pure sucrose so our technology will will, will keep all these products within a a naturally raw sugar hmm. uh, and also at a consistent level so it can be used in in industrial foods for the first time because it's a not just a healthy specification but a consistent specification so you can use it accurately and and uh, repeatably every time so as an end consumer of a product which may be in some of the food that I consume, how will that actually affect me? What will I see differently? Will it taste differently? Will it affect the price? In some of our customers that have, have already launched in, in places like Australia, they've managed to use the, the natural compounds that, that come in uh, sugar, these caramel flavors, to use uh, up to about 20% less sugar in this particular product. So a company like Baker's Delight has launched throughout Australia in all their sweet bread, sweet doughs, and bread products, switching over to this product. So it's a healthier specification, but also tastes a little bit better because it's a more natural, uh, if you like, refined, uh, less refined raw product. And so in many ways, consumers then can make the switch, get an improved product, and really not be paying much more or any more, and um, even get better, better flavor and taste. If I was to look at that and the, the, the flip side of the packaging... Um, or the wrapper, and it was to tell me the breakdown according to the, the traditional metrics, which is the you know the protein, the fat, and the carbohydrates. Would it still say the same? Yeah, yeah well, you're still saying the quality. Still same. Same. Right. You'd, you'd get uh, in this particular example I gave you, you'd, there'd be there'd be less, so it'd be a reduced amount of carbohydrates, but it is still a sugar crystal and it's still still a carbohydrate. So it wouldn't change the nutritional panel of, uh, dramatically in that case. The second part of what you do, you talk about sugar reduction in the food chain or in the products itself. What, what, what actually is that and how does it work? So our second technology, which is called Nucane Life, um, uh, actually is, is a way to um, create a low bulk density sugar. So if you think of a, a sugar crystal, it's very thick, it's very dense. So if you put into a food, a food it takes up a, 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 lot of, uh, a, lot of, a lot of weight, if you like. Mm. Um, and we make a, we have a technology which makes a amorphous sugar powder, uh, which is a, a very uh, low bulk density product. And so actually you can then put up to 70% less sugar in uh, for the same taste and flavor and the same, if you like, bulk in a product. What that also does adds um, a fair degree of things like proteins or fibers to the sugar. So it turns sugar from, from if you like, a hollow nutrient to a very functional, healthier carbohydrate. How is that different from, let's say, the the whole history of sweeteners out there that have been produced? Fundamentally, is it different, or is it just a better version for the modern it's a, consumer? It's a, it works in a few ways. So, so if you look at the whole history of sweeteners, a lot of them are chemicals. Um, a lot of them are artificial. 
they're all hollow nutrients. They don't particularly um, help the digestive system. They don't perhaps help the microbiome. Uh, there is also evidence that those artificial sweeteners still trigger kind of the idea that you're you're hungry and even some degree of insulin response. So artificial sweeteners you know, tend to have their challenges and also customers want uh, natural solutions. So what this does is takes natural sugar and turns it into a sugar solution. So its sugar becomes the solution to the sugar reduction system. What that does is, is you can actually work with the global supply chain, the global food systems, the global regulations, and make a change to, to world health quickly. Hmm. I wonder why in all of this, and I suppose it's anybody that's touching people's lives is carrying a bit of responsibility as well in the products that they produce is why? why why do you do this and matthew for yourself what what is the driver when you wake up in the morning thinking about sugar carbohydrates for you what's the reason well it goes back to to the you know why i found the start of this business in the first place his brother-in-law was dying of diabetes and as a scientist he said how can i stop this mm. um and we wake up every day thinking, look, how, how can the world change quickly? How, the, how can we help not only just save lives everywhere in the world, but if you think of China, you think of India, if nothing changes, there are whole streams of people as they move from one diet to another, from one lifestyle to another, as they move into middle class, there are literally billions of people who are going to make the same mistakes as Western markets if something doesn't change urgently. And there are great new solutions out there, but maybe they take 5, 10, 20, 30 years to move around the world. Maybe they also struggle with regulations. So our approach, which is a sugar-based solution to the sugar crisis, fits with regulations, can scale around the world quickly, and actually save billions of lives over the next, say, 10 years. Yeah, you made a, an important point there about, about Western diets as well and Western cultures is that it's not just western diets and cultures is it and that that's sort of part of the myth isn't it that needs to be exploded you, you and i both live here in singapore which from for most cases people perceive as an advanced economy um you know it's great healthcare. yet you know even though it doesn't have the obvious signs of excess um with any developed economy where you have people you know like obesity visible in the streets diabetes is is rife here isn't it and it's often the, the hidden diabetes isn't it that you have these asian economies which are rapidly developing but have a, a very much a carbohydrates based um food culture and i wonder about your thoughts about that that how you know diabetes really is not just what you see on tv you know like fat americans and brits and australians but you have this problem now of these asian cultures which are you know, having an outbreak of diabetes. Yeah, there's, there's some good work in, in Singapore done by Professor Henry at the CRNC, which is looking at uh, G, uh, the genome and and uh, and predisposition to diabetes within Chinese, Malay, and Indian cultures. So there's a lot of work now being done in this area to look at you know ethnic variabilities in response in insulin response. Um, and no surprise when we look at um, like a market like Southeast Asia, which where 19% of health costs are now going to get against diabetes and obesity. So you've got a, a, a real challenge in some of these markets. And so therefore, we, we're, we've been really accepted quite quickly in markets like Malaysia, where, where industry leaders like CSR have seen our technology, uh, gone to work with the Diabetes Institute of, of Malaysia, NADI, um, taken them through our methodology, taken through our science, and had a really good response to the marketplace by by launching our products out to consumers. And from what we've seen, consumers really are looking for these types of solutions. Mm. 
And how's the reception been here in Asia towards new sugars or less refined sugars? Is it are people open to it? Because I mean, food yeah, culture is very think, strong, right? I think um, consumers change first, um, and customers tend to change change second. Um, the food. Uh, the FIA, we here based in Singapore, led by by Matt Kovac, has just done a, a great deal of research within Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, India, and, and overall, you, you get a number of uh, of feedback from that research, which is which is ninety percent of consumers across these regions are looking to make healthier choices. Uh, Forty to fifty percent of them see sugar changes as a as a large part of what they're trying to trying to do, but at the same time, fifty percent don't see industry brands moving quick enough to give them choices. Mm. And so when we've come up with our technology, uh, particularly people like CSR Malaysia have taken the lead to say, actually, let's grab hold of this because we can see consumers are looking for these types of solutions, but there's not enough in the marketplace. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. What, what does the future hold? Where would you like to see the industry in five to ten years, Matthew? You know, you must have maybe a moonshot idea about what could happen and maybe it's a crazy idea but just who knows sometimes those crazy ideas are the ones that work what are your thoughts well generally speaking if you look at if you talk about the food industry i think the food industry globally is heading in, in the right direction you know we, we don't meet a, a global food company who is not actively looking to make healthy supply ch- uh, choices in their supply chain some of that is driven by consumer needs and some of that's driven by their 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 support for the UN sustainability goals. So we believe our technology is on point for all the things that the industry is going. But beyond that, if there was a moonshot, um, uh, you know, we believe our technology can be be dominant within the global sugar industry. But more from that, we actually think we can take some of our te- technology from not just actually sugar-related solutions, but beyond that and actually to, to tackle diabetes management, diabetes cures themselves, mm. all the way to actually um, – uh, microbiome and gut health. So sugar can become from the problem to the complete solution to managing diabetes and obesity over the next, say, 10 years. It's a fantastic outlook. What, what is the big challenge in all of this? Is it the scale of what you're dealing with or is it the vested interests in the industries you're dealing with? No, I, I think reformulation is, is an important thing for brands. And so um, whenever a, a major brand wants to reformulate, they have to look at a number of changes. So um, first of all, they need to look at you know the price impact, the uh, taste impact. They need to look at um, the the change in their supply chain management, uh, halal certifications, and so so with other tech, I, I you know with other tech, if we, if you and I were in say uh, some degree of media tech and launching a new product, it's customary you launch a product and then and then put out a beta version and keep changing, keep mm-hmm. updating. With food tech and food solutions, customers can't afford to take risks with their brands. So if you have a major brand and you want to make a change, you have to make it right. And so therefore, the bigger changes with the bigger brands need to take time, go through a process to understand that this is the right solution, not just for them, but for their customers. And so time and patience is important because uh, we're dealing with the, the, some of the most important assets of food companies. That's Matthew Godfrey, CEO of Nutrition Innovation, everybody. Matthew, thank you for joining the podcast today and sharing your insights and your vision for the future. No problem. Thank you, Graham. Okay, so we're back. This is Graham talking to Jenny Moss from 
Rethink events. Jenny, we had some really interesting conversations on the podcast. Anand Sundarasan from DSM mm-hmm. Human Nutrition and Matthew Godfrey from Nutrition Innovation, both here based in Asia. Two very different stories that they're sharing with us. One on food as medicine mm-hmm. and one looking at sugar and sugar alternatives. Maybe we can kind of quickly debrief on those stories and talk about them from the 30,000 foot perspective. The whole idea of food as medicine, how does that sit with you? Is that a conversation that's happening now in the industry? Um, What does it mean to you? I think it's increasingly becoming a conversation that that has to happen. I think if you talk to medical professionals, it's really interesting in that they often say that throughout their training, there's very, very little focus on nutrition. You know, it'll be a one tiny module as part of a, you know, a six year medical degree right. will be will be around nutrition. It's generally been sort of you know, uh, sidelined. And I think actually, though, increasingly we're hearing both from the food industry, but also from medical professionals themselves saying we need to, to talk more about about nutrition as part of health, as part of pre- preventative health, but also as part of, you know, treating health issues. Mm. And I think understanding the potential of changing how we eat and the impact that can have on us um, is, is incredibly important. And I think as, as well, part of that is recognising that there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all approach in terms of nutrition. So having the ability to really sort of understand an individual's requirements and, you know, what their body needs, what their, their body is challenged by, um, and then being able to sort of tailor nutrition towards that um, is incredibly important. There's some really exciting startups doing some interesting things in, the, in that space. Mm. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute as well in regards to the event coming up it's incredible isn't it when you talk about the fact that you could do a six-year medical degree and yet only take one module about nutrition that that Mm. in terms of how we've trained the whole healthcare industry how much i suppose how little has gone to focus on nutrition as a key you know cornerstone of health and yet how much we've seen now that the the evidence is there about degenerative diseases linked directly Mm -hmm. to what we put in our mouths. I guess now, obviously, it only really has become more apparent the fact that we have aging populations. And obviously, that now is obvious rather than the fact that food was always associated with getting enough calories and survival as well. Do you think Mm -hmm. we'll have a, a stage now where even when we train doctors, nutrition will become more core to their knowledge base? I think so. I think we've reached a tipping point where actually the the percentage of of, of disease that's actually... Um, non-transferable you know that it's actually simply caused by by lifestyle factors as opposed to mm. um viruses or, or bacteria or, or or other disease you know where it's actually simply you know lifestyle factors has actually beginning to now outweigh um the other so i think that is going to see a sort of tipping point in how medical professionals approach right. approach um treating patients definitely and as you say um i think a lot of that's got to do with how much longer we're living which is also a fa- obviously a fantastic thing and the fact that we're treating disease so much better these days um so now these you know these lifestyle factors are coming into play and people don't just want to live longer they want to live longer well and healthily and actively um so it's about looking at you know the 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 role of diet in that um and yeah and i i think um from a from policy perspective it's got to the point now where actually governments are seeing that it's worth investing in that as well in terms of improving our knowledge base and investing in um 
you know, better solutions that are going to create a, a well population rather than having to be continuously yeah. boosting the healthcare system to, to treat it. So yeah. I think that's what we're also coming. Yeah, and I find you have on the one hand these probably very cutting-edge technologies and, and not just driven mm. by traditional food tech and agri-tech players. Now you have, mm. you know, people from the... I suppose the startup ecosystem coming into this space now, developing, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of technologies you'd associate with some of the most leading areas outside of, you know, traditional industry. And you have those mm -hmm. people coming into the space. And yet at the same time, even with this conversation with Anand, you know, you have mm -hmm. in the same sentence words such as Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine. Mm -hmm. Does that... For you sitting at the more sort of like, you know, uh, sitting, looking down on the industry from your 30,000 foot view, do you sort of see that sitting comfortably? Are they, are they in tune with each other or are they sort of two different areas that still have to yet to find a, a sort of a common meeting point? I think, I think there's, you know, they're definitely in tune. And I think it, it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned Ayurveda. I think, you know, for a lot of people in the world, actually talking about food as medicine is not a surprising thing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, it's almost obvious. And of course, that's how pe many people have been living for many, many hundreds of thousands of years. So I think... Um, you know, it's maybe just in, in, in certain societies where the two have become very, very separate. Um, so I think that kind of understanding that, you know, what we eat is is more just about taste and, yeah, and, 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 and filling ourselves and that mm. it's got a much more important part to play, I think is, is becoming, you know, much more, much more prevalent. Um, and then I think how that sort of links in with the sort of, the, I suppose, the startup tech scene. I think there's so much exciting stuff going around um, in diagnostics, you know, so the idea of really sort of being able to analyze our personal health, our own microbiome, mm. our own DNA, be able to understand how we can personally use foods to, to improve our health. Um, and then also linking in with obviously the sort of online and digital provision of food. So now we can, you know, we can not only diagnose what we need, but then we can order and have delivered to us a very, very specialized diet at the, at the touch of a button. So I think as those two sort of areas of technology collide as well, we're going to see some really um, exciting solutions yeah looking forward to it and i'm also looking forward to hearing what matthew godfrey has to share about nutrition innovation and their approach to new sugar alternatives mm. now let's put it out there the elephant in the room sugar obviously has been mm. a, a subject that has attracted a bad rap in the last mm. last decade i suppose you know when we, we've sort of seen sugar as you know the pariah of the world of nutrition and it's one of these fads isn't it that sort of goes full that pivot switches you know or leans full to the other side and then sort of comes back to the balance and i think now we're sort of come pulling back a little bit and saying it's not in, in the same way we've had that conversation about fats and i think matthew what mm. he talked about was you know one of the problems with sugar as it stands and you know this is covered in the podcast is that when it's refined, it strips it all, all nutrients, you know, so it's sort of, mm. there's no sort of like nutrition value in the sugar apart from the calories, right? So there's mm. no sort of macronutrients or micronutrients in there at all. So now if you can refine sugar using their technology, you can retain a lot of the natural nutrients that make sugar of value and consumable and not sort of I suppose not as high in its sort of glycemic index and so on. Mm. How do you feel that's going to go down with people talking about sugar as potentially a 
solution rather than, than the problem itself. Well, I think you've made a good comparison with the, you know, the the idea of fats as well. And I think almost we have to have um, that kind of extreme reaction that we've seen in the food industry, you know, mm. this kind of big big news and, uh, you know, um, attention on the fact that sugar is bad for us to, to get change. Because I think we'd reached a point and it had almost been by stealth that over, you know, yeah. over several decades, you know, the volume of sugar in our diets had just reached a really incredible point that, you know, is clearly not good for anybody, you know, and, and, and those kind of hidden sugars that we talk about in our foods that we're not even aware of, of, of being there. And I think, we you know, we have got to that kind of crisis point where actually the, the amount of sugar that the, your average person is consuming is just you know way way beyond where it should be so i think you need that kind of that yeah that crisis point where it draws mm. everyone's attention to it and says hang on a sec this isn't okay this isn't sustainable we need to change the way we we need to change the way we formulate foods mm. and i still think it's it's good that we, we've had that um but then as you rightly say you know just because you know we've been eating a very high volume of highly refined sugars and that's bad for us doesn't mean that you know sugar in any form is always going to be bad. I mean, we've, we've, you know, as humans, we've always consumed sugar and sweet things in its natural forms through, through, you know, fruits and 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 and, and uh, plants and things like that. So, I think it, it's really interesting to now be looking at, okay, you know what actually can be the benefits of sugar or what form can sugar come in where actually it, it just sweetens our food and it doesn't have all those other adverse effects mm. and what volume of that is, is, is acceptable and is not going to, you know, cause some of those those problems we're seeing in terms of, you know, diabetes and things like that. So I think it's really interesting that the, the you know, the ideas and the innovation that's, that are going around that. And just as we're now seeing, okay, actually there are, there are some healthy fats and that we need some fats in our diet in order to be healthy, I think we'll see that we need some sugars in our diet in some forms in order to be healthy um, and I think what the, the challenge for the food industry almost is how do we make that change while still um retaining the other pro uh, properties that sugars bring to food because of course with sugars they bring a lot of bulking and a lot of um texture to the foods they're in, they're in and that's you know that that's why they've been added so much so for the food industry it's a challenge to okay how do we go back to back to basics how do we go back to some of these raw more natural forms of sugar but also still you know um be able to reformulate our foods so that they still have that kind of that texture and that bulk that, that the consumers want yeah and I guess that's also one of the, the key values, isn't it? Bringing people from different perspectives as well, not just from inside the industry. Mm. So solving a problem like the one you mentioned about, okay, how do we create change yet at the same time protect what we need to do economically? You know, that's really mm. important that they can't necessarily solve it through the same paradigm they've always solved it as the food industry. Yet, you know, mm -hmm. people coming from the outside, I'm wondering where those innovations come from. Are a lot of the innovations coming from outside of traditional food? I think what's exciting is that we're seeing it on both sides, actually. Um, so I think, yes, we're seeing lots of really exciting food tech startups, you know, more and more and 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 all around the world. And I think that's really exciting. You know, um, we've, we've seen a lot happening in, in the US and Europe and Israel, but now increasingly in Asia, we're seeing some really exciting startups emerging who are, you know, who are coming from science backgrounds and who are, you know, coming up with really exciting new, new products and new ingredients for, for, for food that can uh, tackle some of these challenges um but you know also we're seeing a lot being done by the by the big food brands and obviously so much of the industry globally is 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 dominated by the food mm. brands and i think if we're going to see sort of change at scale actually we're going to need 
to see it coming from within the food brands as well as from outside. And I think we'll see sort of two different things. I think we'll see some startups making it and becoming the big new brands of tomorrow. You know, there'll mm. be some startups today that in 10 years, you know, everyone everyone will know and everyone will be buying on a day-to-day basis. We'll see some other startups actually then uh, cooperating with um, the big food brands, either in a joint venture or even sort of being acquired by and integrated into the food brands and actually using that kind of that the R&D and manufacturing facilities of the food brands and, of course, their distribution networks to act to, to bring their products to market. So I think we'll see sort of twofold. I think we'll see it coming from, from both sides. I don't think it'll just be the startups. I think we're going to see a lot coming out of the uh, out of the brands themselves. Yeah, it has to. That's the only way, the partnership. Mm. OK, so we've been talking about the conversations in the run up to Asia Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week here in Singapore. Mm. Day three specifically, it's obviously a key day for the event. Maybe you can give us a quick heads up on that for those that are coming or those that are thinking of going. Why should we look out for day three? Well, absolutely. I mean, day three very much focuses on these subjects we've been talking about. So we're looking in depth about how we can um, fortify staple foods. I think that's a, that's a critical factor. So if you look at the diets of um, of most people in in Asia and even around the world, um, you know, often people eat very simple diets. How can we actually, through ingredient innovation, actually um, fortify and make those foods more nutrition dense? Um, so that's going to be a really exciting session. Mm. Um, we also have a, a whole section of the program delivered to sugar reformulation and sugar reduction um, combining both some of the major brands and um, such as such as Tate and Lyle such as Ferrero um, but also with some, some really exciting startups in the space such as nutrition innovation um, and then we're also looking in depth though at um, corporate innovation so we have a couple of panels all around you know innovation models and actually what is the best approach for um, companies to make innovation at their core both in terms of their internal R&D processes, but in terms of the ways in which they collaborate and work with uh, food tech startups. So I think that sort of pulls all those themes together that we've been discussing. And I think it's going to be a a really exciting day. Yeah, it's going to be the go-to day for the agri-food industry, I'm sure, in terms of finding out what's going on and also best practices as well. So how do people Mm -hmm. interested in the event register? What's the best way? Yeah, the best way is to go to the website, which which is agrifoodinnovation.com. Um, and then you'll, you can uh, see the registration page. You can register for the whole summit, which is three yep. days, which goes all the way through the agri-food supply chain. Or if you're interested specifically in the food and health and nutrition element, you can just register for day three, which is November the 22nd, and just buy a single day pass. Fantastic. And I'll put it out there as well. So for those that have listened to the podcast, the the guests on the podcast will be at the event. So if you've listened to their conversations, then reach out to them and keep that conversation going as well is if you do see them at the event, then go back and listen to their interviews here on this podcast. Jenny Moss, thank you so much for sharing your insights and thoughts with us today. This is Graham Brown signing off for the Asia Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast on behalf of Jenny Moss and the team at Rethink Events. Jenny, thank you so much. Thanks, Graham. You have been listening to the Asia-Pacific Agri-Food Innovation Week podcast. 
To join three full days of insights and networking for the Asian agri-food ecosystem, visit us at www.agrifoodinnovation.com or find us on LinkedIn and Facebook.